Good morning. My name is Alex. I'm the lead pastor here at Courtright. If you're visiting, I want to add my word of welcome to what Allison said at the beginning of the service. I'm going to move this back a little bit because I need I need light. Wasn't that in our call to worship? Light. So this summer, we started last Sunday in the long weekend. This summer, we're spending some time in the Psalms. The Psalms are an amazing resource for us. They help us to pray, especially when we don't have the words to pray. They awaken our souls when we get numb to God's reality in the world. And they teach us the language of Jesus. Maybe most of all, the way they give us the same words that Jesus spoke is vital for our own faith. Jesus quotes from the Psalms more than from any other book in the Hebrew Bible, what we call the Old Testament. And as we read the Psalms this summer, I hope we'll find that they're going to shape our imagination and they're going to lead us back to God. They're going to pull us away from the distractions of the world we live in with all our busyness and give us a singular focus on the Lord. Like any good poetry, the Psalms are meant to be savored. They're meant to be read over and over. They're meant to be sung, even. The Psalms are made up of God's words, not our own. They teach us to worship. They teach us to express our love for God. They teach us to bring our anger, our confusion, our sorrow, all of our emotions to him. The Psalms help us to see God as who he truly is, that he is listening, that he is with us. And they help us to see him not as we want him to be, not as wishful thinking, a projection of our own desires, but for who he is. And the Psalms humble us. Often they point us to our own mortality, and they can help us to be ready for the hour of our death if we're prepared to let them do that. But most of all, the Psalms remind us of who God is, of his faithfulness and his mighty power to save. He rules. This is our Father's world. And the Psalms never let us forget that. So today we're going to read one of the great Psalms of praise in the book of Psalms. The praise Psalms are the most common form of Psalms. There are 55 praise Psalms out of the 150 we have in the Old Testament. Now, it's a little hard sometimes to classify them. They're, they're, they're a mixture of things. But that is the largest single category of psalms. The second largest is, anyone know? Lament. Isn't that strange in a way? So much for the myth of the happy, clappy Christian. There are 54 psalms of lament in the book of Psalms. Next week, we'll look at one of those. We start with praise, because that is the posture of the Christian. We praise God because he is worthy of all praise and because we were created for that. So let's pray before we open our Bibles. Holy Spirit, would you point us to Jesus this morning so that through him we can be who we truly are, at home with the Father. Amen. Psalm 8. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. 
Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of him? Human beings that you care for them. You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet. All flocks and herds and the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea, all that swim the paths of the sea. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is the word of the Lord. So Psalm 80 asks the most basic question we can ask. The question that sometimes we're avoiding, but always lurks, I think, beneath the surface of our regular day-to-day lives. And that question is, who am I? In the middle of this psalm, and at the core of its message, we find the words, what is mankind? And then the psalmist proceeds to look for answers by going in the exact opposite direction of our natural instincts and of the culture around us. He talks about God as he talks to God. You, 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 with reference to the Lord is the refrain of this psalm. Not I, but you. The psalm starts with an outburst of praise, a familiar line to some of us, I would say. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Your glory is in the heavens. So majesty here means greatness, as in a king or a queen. And glory is the weight or the substance of something. So God is all around us. He's in all the earth. And yet he's beyond us. He's distant and unfamiliar. He's huge, absolutely enormous as well. The heavens are the sky, space, the universe. It's not heaven here as, as in life after death. And why does it refer to God's name? Well, because God's name is his reputation. You think about how we might want to protect our good name. The psalm tells us the truth about God, that he's majestic and beautiful. Although we know that many people deny that and only use God's name in vain. All along, all the while, the mountains are singing to him, the trees are clapping their hands, and as we heard earlier, even the stones, the very stones, cry out to him in worship. And so this first verse is a visionary start for a psalm of praise that points us in the direction we need to go. Now what comes next in verse 2 makes a lot less sense, to me anyway. You've got majesty, you've got glory, you've got heavens, okay, That sounds like praise. And then who shows up in verse 2? Children and infants. And apparently their praise establishes somehow a stronghold against God's enemies. Why would God use the praise of children? How do children, small and fragile as they are, fit into this expanse we witnessed as we looked up to start the psalm. Well, I think God uses children to surprise us. 
and to show us the truth about his glory, that it's not like the glory we seek for ourselves. Adults often don't get it. My kids tell me that all the time, usually when I'm trying to make a joke. They look at me and they say, you are so off track. Please stop doing that. But the innocence of a child, and not of a teenager, let me be clear, (laughs) the innocence, wonder, and even the weakness of a child point us to God. Many of you know this, whether you have kids that age, grandkids that age, or maybe you've been involved in children's ministries here at Courtright. Kids have this remarkable natural awareness of God. And that's partly why Jesus says that we need to become like children. The Apostle Paul, as we saw recently in our series in 1 Corinthians, says that God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. And he chose the praise of children and infants to build a stronghold against his enemies. The faith of a child can silence the enemies of God. It's an amazing thing. In verse 3, the psalmist continues to ponder this majesty of God's. How the Lord made the moon and the stars with his very fingers. With all of this, the psalmist asks himself and asks us, why would God care about me? And he looks up at the night sky. He feels how small he is. And he asks the big question, who am I in the middle of this greatness? And that prompts us in turn to ask the big questions about our lives. The night sky has that effect on people. It always has, especially for poets and philosophers. I drove my 16-year-old son Callum up to Pioneer Camp yesterday He's working there as a counselor this summer. A few of our youth are up at Pioneer right now, actually. And on my way home, one of my favorite songs came on the radio. Bob Cajun by the Tragically Hip. The most Canadian band ever. The Tragically Hip sing about the prairies, the RCMP, polar bears, and yes, of course, the Toronto Maple Leafs. That's another kind of lament, isn't it? When I hear the song Bob Cajun, it always makes me think of Psalm 8. Gord Downey, lead singer for the Tragically Hip, who died of brain cancer two years ago. Downey, I imagine, considering the heavens and in response to that marvel, writing these words. It was in Bob Cajun where I saw the constellations reveal themselves one star at a time. It's a song about the tension between life in Bob Cajun and life in Toronto. It's a peculiarly Canadian dilemma because we have the most remarkable night sky once you leave the city. And a lot of people were on their way north to do just that yesterday. But the backdrop to this song, its chorus, its title, its heart and its soul, is Bob Cajun where he saw the constellations reveal themselves one star at a time. It's such a great line. 
And it's a longing all of us can relate to, I think. A longing for beauty, a longing for the largeness, the freedom of the sky, a longing for eternity. Gord Downey somehow makes the stars personal because constellations can't reveal themselves, right? That's not scientific. But still, we wonder at the night sky. And I imagine Downey looking up as he lay in a canoe, perhaps, in the middle of Sturgeon Lake. Likewise, I imagine David, not yet king, wondering as his sheep slept and as he looked up from a hillside near Bethlehem. 3,000 years have passed between David wondering and Gord Downey wondering and the rest of us too. And thanks to modern science, we know so much more today about those stars, about the constellations of which they're a part. But we haven't stopped marveling at them. I think we marvel at them even more in a way today because all of our knowledge has still failed to answer the most basic questions. We still wonder, who am I? Why am I here? Is there someone who can help me? Who can reveal what I need to see? Who can love me and watch over me? The psalmist's answer to those questions is, Yes, there is. And he proceeds to give his own answer to the question he asked in verse 4, what is man? And the next three words he offers up change everything. You made him, is what he says. God created us. He is mindful of us, which means he pays attention to every one of us though the universe is vast beyond our comprehension. He cares for us. Now, either you believe that, no matter the doubts you may have, either you're in a position of belief about that, or what's the alternative? Without God, who are we? We're products of an enormous cosmic accident, and evolution over millions of years. And if you're an accident, you're ultimately insignificant. If there's no one there to reveal the constellations and the truth about who we are and our purpose, then though we we refuse to think of it, we turn away from this, the truth is that there's only death waiting for us. Now, of course, there are still good things. There's pleasure. You can find something to live for relationships are worthwhile. But it's all going to end. And you'll be forgotten. And as far as I can tell, the experience I had in my 20s when I turned away from the Christian faith in which I'd been raised was that that way leads to despair. Those three words, you made us, change everything. Earlier we seemed small, puny, unimportant next to God's majesty. But now we learn that humans are only a little lower than the angels and that they share in God's glory. They are crowned with it, which means that we are made in God's image. So there's this order to the way things are in the universe, the way they should be. And we are in a category of our own. 
we bear the image of God himself. We've been given power to rule the earth. God put everything at our feet, says the psalm. So it's this quick turnaround for us. We were humbled by God's greatness, and now we find that we're actually incredibly significant in his design for the world. But as that sinks in for us, there's trouble right away. We were made, created to be part of God's harmony. But we could not accept that, and we turned away to make a name for ourselves. We chose our own glory, and we invited disorder and chaos into a life apart from the Creator, a life that is no life. We were given dominion, this incredible trust, and we abused it. And here the psalm makes us go back to Genesis chapter 1, where we read, God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule, or the King James Version would say, have dominion over the fish in the sea and the whole world. Now, if you know anything about the history of environmentalism, you know that that last line, the part about ruling or having dominion over the world, makes environmentalists crazy. Because they read it as license for people to do whatever they want with the world. But that is a serious misreading of the text. God gave us dominion over the world so that we could work with him collaborate, literally, cultivate the earth and share its bounty with others, which means that we are accountable to God for our stewardship of everything. We can't do whatever we want with our natural environment. Dominion does not mean domination, and it certainly doesn't mean destruction. Since we hold the world in trust, we have to manage it responsibly and productively. I had a professor when I was at Regent College named Lauren Wilkinson who used to go out and chain himself to those great redwood trees when people threatened to cut them down. He lived on an island, Galliano Island, and he taught me that the Christian vision of life and creation care, environmentalism, are not only compatible, they should perfectly overlap. God gave us a purpose. He made us regents in the world. That's where Regent College gets its name. A regent is someone who exercises the ruling power in a kingdom on behalf of the sovereign. We're created in God's image, but we have abused our power and exploited one another. Psalm 8 sets the record straight. It gives us a balanced and biblical view of human nature. And so we're humbled, we're brought low by God's greatness, and we have to confess our sin in response. We have to confess our failure to take care of the earth and to care for one another. But at the same time, we are lifted up because we know that God has made us in his image, and he's given us all things. So these these two sides to the human coin, we are a paradox as we find ourselves today. I was listening to a sermon by Alistair Begg, a Scottish guy, a preacher in Cleveland now, and 
it was on Psalm 8, and he gave me this great metaphor for these two sides of human nature. We're made in God's image, so we're like a castle. We're crowned with glory and honor, says this psalm. We're magnificent that way. But in our rebellion against God, the castle of human nature fell into ruin. Maybe some of you can tell me where that is in Scotland. Someone knew. I knew they would. (laughs) I'm a little biased as a MacLeod, but I think the most beautiful ruined castles in the world are in Scotland. It's beautiful, isn't it? But it doesn't work. It's not as it was meant to be. But there's hope for us in spite of the ruins of our lives and the ruins of our world. Hebrews 2 quotes Psalm 8 and points out that the world right now doesn't look like it should. It doesn't look like how God created it. Right now, we don't see everything subject to human beings. We are not rulers over the works of God's hands. We can't control the natural world for all that we keep trying. We are overwhelmed by hurricanes, by tsunamis, by earthquakes, by flooding and drought. We can't control those large things, but we can't even control ourselves. We can't control our families. We fight each other. The world is full of this kind of suffering. It's full of evil and violence. In many ways, it's out of control. But into that picture of chaos, there is one exception. There is one man who steps in to restore nature as God intended it to be. What we see right now is Jesus. He came to this world and he was in control. Even the wind and the waves obeyed him. He had power over disease, over blindness, and even over death itself. He's in control. The world is under his feet. He is the true human being. The second Adam who puts things right. Jesus came into the world to make it possible for us to live out our destiny as God intended it. And so that eventually we would be what Psalm 8 says that we are meant to be. Jesus came and tasted death for everyone. He came and died in our place. He came and dealt with our guilt, the regret we have knowing that we are guilty when it comes to the abuse of others, to the violence, that we have betrayed our trust. We have not loved God as we should. We have not loved one another. Jesus wades into that and he releases us from it, from its burden. He sets us free. And so this psalm concludes as it began. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. What is man? What does it mean to be human? You can only actually know that if you know God. You can't know the answer to that question without knowing God through Jesus Christ. So we're here this morning and we're involved in no small thing. We're actually involved in understanding what it means to be human. This isn't something we add on to our lives. Like on Sunday morning we go to church... Sunday afternoon, we go golfing. There are little parts and pieces of our lives. It's not like that. 
This has got to do with what it means to be human. It's everything. We sang it earlier, my father's world. So it encompasses whatever you're pursuing right now in your life. Maybe you're an artist or you love the arts. Maybe you're a scientist and you heard me say evolution and alarm bells went off in your head. Maybe you're an environmentalist. Maybe you're a business person. Maybe you're in politics. Whatever it is that you're pursuing in your life, Christ says, that is part of my world. And your Christian faith will inform what you are called to do, your vocation, if you look to me first for that direction. This also means that this good news about Jesus who comes alongside us and points us in the right direction, especially when we're lost, isn't something that we can keep private. It's not something that remains within these walls. This good news, this gospel news is for everyone. It's for every human being. Because you can't actually be truly, fully human unless you know what Jesus has done for you, unless you've received that. And so no family will be a true human family, if you want to think of it this way, if that family doesn't know Jesus. To say nothing of what our society will be if we continue to build it on the lie of that cosmic accident. God has made himself known to us, and he sends us out to make him known in the world. And all God's people said, let's pray. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Thank you for making us, and thank you for the dignity you've given us as human beings made in the image of God. Thank you for redeeming that dignity when we fell into ruin, for redeeming it through Jesus Christ. Help us in the week ahead to understand and to more and more express what it is to be truly human in how we're living our lives. Holy Spirit, would you come alongside us in that? In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.